In a world where merger and acquisition activity is still relatively subdued, companies are turning to spin-offs, sales, and divestitures. But what factors are driving this trend? And what does this trend tell us about the broader deal-making environment? There's been a change in corporate sentiment over the past decade. So if you rewind the tape to the global financial crisis, 2008, there was a focus on portfolio diversification, consolidation, increasing complexity. That is changing and shifting sentiment towards one of simplification, where there is enhanced focus across the portfolio and also unlocking some of the discounts that may exist within a portfolio. I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. A new report co-authored by Goldman Sachs and EY explains how and why companies are leaning into corporate separations. Joining us today to walk through those findings are Goldman Sachs' David Dubner, Global Head of M&A Structuring within Global Banking and Markets, and Cherith Sharma, Global Vice Chair at EY. David, Cherith, welcome to the program. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. So the pace of corporate separations is on the rise. More than 30 global separations were announced in 2022 alone. So before we jump into the drivers of this big acceleration in this trend, David, can you explain to us first what corporate separations are and how they actually differ from M&A? Sure. A corporate separation, as we've evaluated in our report, is essentially a capital market separation whereby a subsidiary of a larger parent company is distributed to the parent company shareholders. So when the dust settles, shareholders own stock in the parent company or the Remain Co., as well as stock in the new company called Nuco. In the U.S., that's often referred to as a spinoff. In Europe, also known as a demerger. In terms of how it differs from other forms of M&A, a corporate separation does not require a counterparty, unlike traditional forms of M&A. And similarly, it is agnostic and not dependent on capital market conditions that exist at the time. And so these type of separations have been around for decades. Why are we seeing a rise in popularity of them today? I think there's been a change in corporate sentiment over the past decade. So if you rewind the tape to the global financial crisis, 2008, there was a focus on portfolio diversification, consolidation, increasing complexity. And that if you look across the S&P 500, there are roughly two-thirds of the companies in the S&P have at least three segments with more than $500 million of revenue. That is changing and shifting sentiment towards one of simplification, where there is enhanced focus across the portfolio and also unlocking some of the discounts that may exist within a portfolio. There's three underlying drivers for the change in sentiment. First is the pandemic. We have emerged, or emerging, I should say, from a pandemic where the focus was very inward. There were elevated numbers of strategic reviews that have been announced, which have caused companies to reevaluate and reimagine their business mix. Secondly, the cost of capital has fundamentally changed. We were at near zero rates for an extended period of time. We are now in an elevated cost of capital environment, and that means it is no longer growth at any cost capital allocation decisions take on far greater significance. And lastly, as organic growth opportunities have slowed, there is increasing importance being placed by management teams and shareholders on profitability or good old-fashioned margin. And often you can think about a corporate separation as an opportunity to achieve addition by subtraction. And Sheriff, let me bring you into the conversation. Talk to us a little bit about where these types of separations are most prevalent. I think they're occurring in a number of industries to the statistic that David had. A number of the S&P 500 have multiple segments. 
And to the comment made around COVID, the overlap between industries and adjacencies is forcing almost every industry to take another look at whether there are better shareholders for the assets they own within the company. Right now, most of the activity is in diversified pharmaceuticals. I'd say the second sector is diversified industrial products. And as you look around the world, with Alibaba announcing its intent to break into six companies, Porsche in Europe, we think this will now get into some other sectors like technology and consumer products and become more prevalent around the world as well. I completely agree with your comment, Sharath. I think as you highlight healthcare and industrials, I view those sectors as ones where there is a significant amount of innovation, right? Disruption, often technology-fueled. And when we look at sectors where you see innovation, it can also breed divergent financial profiles across a portfolio of businesses. And I think in some of those cases, you can find yourself with legacy businesses that may have a slower growth or margin profile where a corporate separation can be an attractive potential opportunity. Yeah. That's well said, David. And to the conversation around different segments, these are complicated decisions for companies to make because it's not always a straightforward separation of a business. It could be a collection of assets from different businesses. And getting the perimeter right, the equity strategy right, having a clear evaluation of what Remainco would do are all complex decisions often can get quite emotional when you decide perimeter of assets and how they get packaged. It can also be very emotional to figure out when to do this transaction. Dow DuPont took a while to figure out the right kind of assets to put into Corteva, so on and so forth. These deals tend to generate extraordinary amounts of value to shareholders, but they are complex to make the decision in the first place. And what I find interesting is that when we think of spinoffs, I know when I think of spinoffs, I usually think of companies trying to get rid of underperforming assets. But you both have alluded to the fact that there can be opportunistic separations that can deliver and create shareholder value. So talk to us a little bit more about opportunistic separations, David. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Allison. All tides rise, right? That's the intention with these transactions. We had the opportunity to speak with many executives that have executed these transactions as part of our report. Two key themes emerged as drivers of value creation. One is using a corporate separation to enable transformation across strategy and operations, both for the parent company as well as for the NUCO. And the second was risk management, which all combine with resiliency within organization. And as I think about practically how that manifests itself for a company, one is dedicated management focus on a narrower set of businesses, maybe pure play, maybe broader than that, but that focus breeds operational efficiencies and opportunities. Second is having an independent capital structure, right? The ability to allocate capital in ways that are optimized for a particular business as opposed to a broader conglomerate. Third being equity currency. How do you attract and retain talent in a competitive environment that we exist in today? And how can you use that currency to grow through M&A or other inorganic opportunities? And lastly is the shareholder base. How can we think about migrating what may be a broader shareholder base of a conglomerate or diversified company to more of a pure play base that is focused on a particular sector with research coverage that understands and appreciates the dynamics of that sector. All of the research on this topic have been nebulous on how to measure the success of these transactions. So Goldman and EY 
Our opinion is that you measure the success of these transactions at the end of the second year, market cap of Remainco and Nuco compared to the market cap of the parent before the split occurred. So why two years? We picked two years because these complex global deals, they have the interim operating models for countries where operations are a little bit more complicated to separate, like China and India. It takes some time to get it done. And transition service agreements between the parent and new code take about two years on average. So we like the two-year horizon. If that was the measure, these transactions on average outperform the S&P 500 sector index in the mid-single digits, which is phenomenal for shareholders. Your point on mid-single digit outperformance is an important one, Jareth, and that's a blended metric. And if you think about it from either side, one interesting observation that we make in the piece is that NUCO's outperformance has the highest correlation to revenue growth. So therefore, as we think about placing NUCO in the public markets for the first time, there are many aspects that ultimately will focus around optimization, but one key area of focus needs to be the growth factors for that business and how the strategy and the equity story that they're communicating to investors supports that growth strategy. Generally, the time period between announcing and close garners a lot of attention to corporate functions because they tend to be what's entangled. Sometimes supply chains are entangled around the world, but Nuco management can do a lot during that time period to get prepared for growth above market for an extended period of time with more focus, with more investments into both inorganic and organic channels. And that's very important to get done and not get distracted with the complexities of disentanglement by focusing on what truly does drive shareholder value. And if we take a step back for a moment and we talk about the process of spinoffs, you end up with a remaining company and a newly formed company. You called it a new co, David. So, Sherith, talk to us a little bit about the parent company. How does the remaining parent company leverage the opportunities that David just mentioned opportunistically over the short, medium, and long term once they do this transaction? Remainco needs to transform itself to David's point, just like Nuco has to take advantage of all of those levers he laid out for itself. Both companies need to work on this event, if you will, to reimagine their businesses and their operations. And so what guiding principle allows that to happen, right? I think the parent establishing a guiding principle that says the sum of the two EPS needs to be at or better than the current is a good guiding principle. And because we measure two years out, it's in everybody's best interest to think about capital allocation, sharing talent between the two companies in a way that enables success to be achieved for both sides at the end of that second year. So what kinds of things can the Remainco's do to improve their performance? So conventionally, Remainco's went after stranded costs. The stranded costs is costs they're left with because they couldn't allocate it out to the company that they're creating, if you will. Conventionally, they've gone after eliminating that expense. So we are advocates for the company to do more than that. Back to the discussion we were having on how to generate outperformance for both the companies. It's a rare opportunity for the parent to understand all the detailed wiring of the business when they're trying to separate a business. So taking advantage of the learnings from that to simplify their back office functions, often called general and administrative expenses or GNA, is very important. 
It gives them a hard look into their procurement expenses and supply chain, which is a major category within their PL, to renegotiate their vendor contracts. And then at the end of the day, when they separate systems, they have a real clean look at the data that's available, which is a powerful accelerator of value as they find out how to do more with analytics and automation and so on and so forth within Remainco. That, I think, is the opportunity for Remainco to use this moment to think about all of those operational and tactical items, but also to move up the value chain, if you will, and take another look at whether their segments should change, whether their peers have changed, and if the structure of their leadership team needs to change. It's a rare moment for them to be able to do all that in a very short period of time. And the average timeline from announcement to closing a separation transaction is, call it nine to 13 months. I think the point you're making is important to highlight, which is we would encourage Remainco's or parent companies to use that time to their advantage, not just adopt a clone and go approach to a separation, but rather think about how during that period, not only are they appropriately setting up Nuco to be a first-time public company, but they're reimagining what the Remainco can be, both in terms of their processes, their people, their growth opportunities, and all of the points that you made. It's a very good point, David. There is no correlation we've observed between the time it takes to get the deal done between announce and close and excess returns. However, speed is important because of the ambiguity and the need to move forward and separate the businesses so that they can operate as quickly as possible. Conventionally, companies have tended to do exactly what David said, clone and go in the interest of speed. But we're at a different time now. We are advocates for Newcore to do more improvements as they separate and for Remaincore to, in parallel, launch several mini transformations so that both companies can be at a better place at the time of the transaction. David, do you have anything to add? Ultimately, every situation is bespoke, right? These transactions are not one size fits all. So as we think about engaging in one of these transactions, you want to carefully consider at the outset before you make any decision whether or not to move forward. How entangled is the new co-business from the parent company? What is involved operationally in that separation? And that includes all aspects of the organization. For example, IT, IP, HR, tax, a host of various considerations. You also want to think about upfront contractual and other legal implications that arise in the context of a separation. And what I'm really driving at is before you embark, you want to think about showstoppers and you want to plan appropriately, recognizing that inherently issues will arise during the pendency of the transaction and management teams and their advisors will work through those issues as they arise. Some of your advice focuses on talent and the necessity of training that talent to operate and execute in the new co. Your advice really touches on two factors, announcing a leadership team decisively and early, and then picking that new management team incredibly carefully. Why is that so central? We want both the Remainco as well as Nuco to hit the ground running. Now, that is operationally, but that is also vis-a-vis their management team. And therefore, as you say, Allison, we spend time in the report exploring that it is oftentimes optimal and more often occurs in practice to bring a management team, CEO, CFO in earlier in that process so they can begin to hone their messaging, 
their understanding of the strategic objectives and go-forward strategy for the company. They can begin to prepare in advance of rating agency presentations, IR days, and equity roadshows to be in the best position to be in a mentality of what I would call beaten race, right, as opposed to uh, the alternative. And that's ultimately where we want these companies to be. If I can add to that, I think the decade-old wisdom on this topic was, let's wait and announce the leadership team of Nuco about a quarter before the roadshows begin. And I think that in the earlier days of these types of transactions at a decade ago, that thinking was because they didn't want disruption within the company on who gets to make what decisions. Our opinion is to do the reverse of that, to David's point, to announce the leadership team early enough for the management team to be trained in their individual jobs and also to come together as a team. A little over 80% of the CEOs of new cores come from within the organization. A little over 70% of the CFOs come from within the organization. And those are the statistics. We're also advocates for bringing new talent into the leadership team so that it is well-balanced from knowing the business and then knowing how to operate a business standpoint. And we're also advocates for more diversity in the leadership team. At the end of the day, bringing them all together and giving them enough time to work together as a team is a critical success factor for Nuco to outperform. Here again, if you contrast this with what are the parents' responsibilities, it's to help them get trained, to David's point. Let the CFO come to earnings calls. Let the CEO attend board meetings. Help train them, I think, is very important. And another vital key to success is communication. That seems obvious. But given the complexity of these transactions and given all of the different participants and parties that are involved, we have customers, employees, shareholders. How has communication played a role in the success? And what are some examples where communication was done well and was a large contributor to the success? To the earlier conversation about the complexity of these deals and the emotional attachment to doing these deals in the first place, this is not a decision you take lightly. That brings a lot of emotional attachment to this deal for our people, for our suppliers, for our customers. Regulators around the world want to understand what this is about. So the way out of this we have observed in our paper is to communicate proactively, often, effectively, and to make the decisions that you're communicating transparently and in advance of when the decision is due. That kind of clarity allows us to dispel ambiguity. It allows us to get trust back in the process to new management teams. They all now know when decisions are being done. They know who's going to make these decisions. And it's very clear on when you're going to communicate the impact of these decisions to all of those stakeholders. This is a very important point for creating those excess returns that we talked about. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And culture matters, right? Every organization, much like our own, have their own unique cultures. It's important to have that early, often, and continuous dialogue with your employees because this is a period of significant uncertainty, both in terms of equity-based comp arrangements, their own workplace financial planning, understanding how that will be addressed in the context of a separation is important. And then, Allison, you mentioned shareholders. Shareholders is a key constituency that companies need to consider in these transactions. As I alluded to earlier, a key focus is ensuring that the shares of Nuco migrate to their natural home. Therefore, we treat these transactions as if we were IPOing Nuco. We're not actually raising new capital, generally speaking, or placing the shares, 
But we treat that engagement process through roadshows and investor day similarly to how we would if we were raising fresh capital for the business. Because again, we want to ensure that natural shareholder base exists and is available and opportunistic in their migration into the register. I think that's a very important point. The peer groups are going to be different for new co. Very likely they're going to be different from parent co. So it's an important moment in time to take another look at who these peers are and what performance indicators differentiate both companies after this transaction and how you cascade those metrics to the rank and file and incentivize the right kinds of behaviors. And the approach to communicate the value proposition of both companies to shareholders, strategy for strategy, you know, it's equity narrative, it's an equity strategy. And those are two different threads. Strategy conventionally is to grow a company to take another look at the portfolio. But this is different from that, right? This is very clear articulation of why this business is going to be an outperformer. And it's different than conventional strategy to the point David was making. We discussed at the beginning that this process in terms of corporate separations is accelerating. We're seeing so many of them. How should we think about these transactions as a feature or a harbinger of M&A activity and deal volume more generally in what has been, as we said, a more subdued M&A environment? First, I think some of these transactions fit within what I would call a shrink-to-grow thesis, which is it can be difficult to grow all parts of a diversified organization simultaneously. If I can separate out pieces, much like some of the transactions, Sharath, you mentioned earlier, then I may be able to more effectively optimize and grow those businesses. So I think we certainly expect to see more corporate separations announced. Secondly, in the context of regular way M&A, two companies merging, we are more commonly seeing an acquirer say that there may be certain parts of that portfolio that are less strategic for their objectives, and therefore we're seeing separations coupled with regular way M&A. Third, we see an increased incidence of change of control transactions on the part of the Remain Co., as you termed it, Allison, or the New Co. It's a higher level of M&A than you see across the broader market defined. And the last harbinger would be bolt-ons. A New Co. has, for the first time in its existence, its own independent equity currency, and we see them using that currency to engage in M&A. If I can add a couple of data points. So historically, of all the deals the team has studied in this paper, RemainCo has returned 67% of capital to shareholders. The pace with which industries are changing and the opportunities available for companies to outperform, we're advocates for using some of that capital for acquisitions moving forward for these types of deals. For NUCO, 45% of capital was used for organic and inorganic investments, M&A to David's point. We're advocates for doing more of that. And I want to tie this back to tenures because I think it's an important lens through which to view the acceleration of these deals and the acceleration of economic cycles themselves. The average tenure of a CFO or a COO or a CIO is now at about four years in the S&P 500. That's a rapid amount of C-suite turnover. The CEOs tend to be about seven to eight years. So there's not a lot of time to come up with design and execute in one's tenure. And so M&A, as well as organic investment plans, we see acceleration of those cycles and we're advocates for both sides to do more of this with their own currency, to use the phrase David used. Sure. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you, Allison. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, recorded on Thursday, March 30th, 2023. 
If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit gs.com and sign up for briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.